Good morning. It's good to be with you guys. Hope you're doing well. We're continuing a study that we introduced last week through the book of Judges. And this is something that is new in the life of our church. Typically, we've gone through books of the Bible that uh, we can look at smaller sections of Scripture. And that's kind of my sweet spot, five to seven verses. But as we're going through Judges, in order to get uh, kind of the full context of the story, we're, we're looking at whole chapters at a time. So these Scripture readings are going to be fun each week, and they're going to be progressively fun as we look through the stories, as we listen to God's Word being read to us. Last week, Will kicked off our study through the book of Judges. He laid the foundation for our study, looked at the background for Judges. And I want to remind you of a couple things that he said in light of where we're going this morning and the goal of the series. Will said, I love the book of Judges because it shows, clearly shows the gospel in every story. And that's kind of what we're hoping to look at each week is our need for a Savior, our need for Jesus. And I pray and hope that you will see Jesus being the fulfillment as the gospel being the answer to every story that we look through as a church. We'll also mention that through the book of Judges, we clearly see the character of God and his interactions with humanity. See that there are real consequences for human actions, that God is a just God, that he's sovereign, but he can restore and redeem according to his will. We'll mention that uh, the book of Judges teaches us about God's mercy and discipleship and God's grace and uh, the providence and power of God throughout his dealings with his people. Uh, Will, thank you for your message last week. I was encouraged, and thank you for laying the foundation of our study. Uh, Judges chapter 2, what we're looking at this morning is the second half of the introduction to the book. So Judges chapter 1 was like a historical overview of what happened, what went down, uh, how they didn't fail to uh, complete the conquest. Judges 2 offers kind of an introductory commentary and an overview of of where we're going with the book. That's where we're going this morning. You guys ready to go there with me? I hope so, uh, because I don't really have another message planned, so (laughs) we're going with Judges 2. You notice in your outline that we have a series of three questions, and last week we'll uh, kick this off and, and describe that as we go through the study, we've identified three questions that we're seeking to be answered each week. And one of these reasons is to help us, as we preach through Judges, to be somewhat coherent, if I'm going to be honest. Judges is complex, it's hard, and these questions offer some sort of framework, a structure that we can uh, create and and form our sermons off of. But the second reason, and another reason that we decided to utilize these questions, is hopefully to equip you as a learner of God and a student of his word, how do you study the Old Testament? I've talked with many of you this week about how you've You've told me the Old Testament is not something that I readily go to. It's, it's honestly something that I've even avoided because it's hard to understand. It's difficult. I prefer, uh, gospel, give me the Gospels, give me a, a letter of Paul, maybe Peter. Uh, I like to stay in those areas. Old Testament, I don't know what's going on. There's some crazy things that go down, and I don't know how to read it. And hopefully these questions provide some sort of equipment for you to be a student of God's Word as we look at the Old Testament, as there are some very confusing and disturbing even, and increasingly disturbing through Judges. What's the point, and what do we take away from this, and how do we, we see this as one larger story within the grand story of the Bible? And those three questions uh, are, what does this story proclaim about God and his relationship with his people? How does this story uh, relate to the larger story of the Bible, the, the meta-narrative, 
How do we see the Bible as one big story? And this story in Judges fits into that greater story. And finally, what exhortation or, or admonition does this story offer? And what that means is what kind of warning, admonition, does this story present? Or what kind of exhortation, what kind of encouragement? Essentially, what this question is getting at is, what is, what is this story calling us to do? What do we do with this? Does that make sense? All right. Judges chapter 2. If you have a Bible, open with me to that passage that uh, Denise read. If you don't own a Bible, we'd love to give you one here at, at the, on the coffee bar. Uh, just take it. We'd love to gift you a copy of the scriptures. Let's look at Judges chapter 2, shall we? So, verse 1 comes right out of the gate. It says, The angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bochum. Bochum. And this is important because I don't think it necessarily is t- teaching us that angels live in certain places. Like this angel only hang, hung out in Gilgal, and then he just happened to leave his territory and meander on down to Bochum. What the author of Judges is trying to do here is remind us, when was the last time we see this angel of the Lord at Gilgal? And it was actually a covenant that was made with Joshua in, in chapter 5, verse 9, uh, of God's covenant with his people. So the, the author is trying to remind us of God's covenant promise. It says, and he reminds us again, I brought you up from Egypt and brought you to, into the land that I swore to give your fathers. And I said, I will never break my covenant with you. Again, this is to remind the people of the covenant that God made with the grandfather of the Israelites, which is Abraham, who fathered Isaac, who fathered Jacob, which then is renamed Israel. And that's where we get the nation of Israel from. This covenant made with Abraham that I'm going to make an everlasting covenant with you. You will inherit this land that I will give you. I'm not going to break my covenant with you. But there's a stipulation of this covenant. It says, you will make no covenant with inhabitants of this land. God wants an exclusive relationship with his people. He wants people to worship and love him exclusively. It says, you shall break down their altars. It says, you have not obeyed my voice. What is this you have done? Verse three, so now I say, I will not drive them out before you, but they shall become thorns in your sides and their gods shall be a snare to you. As soon as the angel of the Lord spoke these words to all the people of Israel, the people lifted up their voices and wept and they called the name of that place, Bochum, for they sacrificed there to the Lord. When Joshua dismissed the people, the people of Israel went each to their inheritance to take possession of the land. And the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, who had seen the great work that the Lord had done for Israel. And Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110. And they buried him with the boundaries of an inheritance in Timnath Ares in the hill country of Ephraim, north of the mountain of Gash, and all the generation who were gathered to their fathers. This is important, the end of verse 10. And there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work he had done for Israel. Now, when we use the word know, there's a couple of ways that we can use it, right? You can say, do you know Bill Gates? On the one hand, I, I, I know Bill Gates because I know about him. I know of him. But do I know Bill Gates personally? Personally, I do not. Do I know my wife? I hope so. I hope that I know my wife. There's different ways that this word know can be utilized. And in other languages, they might make it a little easier. I know in Spanish, there's two different words for know. One signifying know about, one signifying know relationally. And there's similar ideas in in the Bible. So this word know does not necessarily mean know about. These people might have known about God. 
But the word here, no, means no relationally, no experientially. So they didn't have a relationship with God. They rose, they didn't know God in that sense. And they didn't know the work that he had done. Notice the generation before uh, in verse 7, at the end of verse 7, it says they had seen. So that generation saw with their eyes all the work that God had done. But this generation did not know. They didn't grow up knowing all that God had done for them. And that's important as we look through the story. Verses now 11 through 23 kind of show an overview, a brief overview of where we're going with the book. And especially in verses 16 through 23, you'll see this cycle that's presented that will be repeated throughout the book of Judges, this uh, cycle of of sin and redemption and slavery and oppression uh, that will lay the foundation and the overview of every story in the book of Judges. But verse 11 continues and said, this generation now, this generation who didn't know God, they didn't know all the work they had done for Israel, they did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. They served the Baals. Baals were the Canaanite gods. The Baals were, it means lords. They served pagan gods. They abandoned the Lord, verse 12, and the God of their fathers and had, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. They went after other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were around them and bowed down to them and they provoked the Lord to anger. Verse 13, they abandoned the Lord's and served the Baals and the Ashtoreth. And a side comment here, which I think is interesting, is that there are kind of two different ways that you could view this verse the, and these ideas, these terminology, this word of Baals and Ashtoreth. On the one hand, some uh, scholars, some theologians believe that these terms refer to general gods. So the Baals were kind of the, a general way of talking about all the, the pagan gods of the Canaanite people and the male deities. The Ashtaroth were all the, the female deities, the goddesses that they would serve. But other would argue that these are actually a reference to specific gods, specific gods to Canaan. And Baal was the storm god. He was the god who was responsible for causing rain. And Ashtaroth uh, was considered his partner, his wife, uh, this, the female goddess. And this is crazy, and bear with me, if you will, the the belief and thought was in order for there to be rain and a fertile land, which was very important for this Canaanite society and agriculture society, these two gods had to engage in coitus. They had to hook up. They had to get together. And that would cause rain. It would cause uh, fruitful soil. It would be good for the people. But they didn't naturally do it. So the gods had to be coerced into being together. So what they would do is they'd set up these, these temple cults, uh, cults and practices of prostitution. So you worshiped these gods, and in order to entice these two to get together, you'd go and you'd lay with a temple prostitute. And that's the way you worshiped these gods. It's pretty crazy, isn't it? <laughs> now, whatever, whatever might be referenced here, whether those are sp- those specific gods, and, and to me that makes a little bit of sense why the, the imagery of prostitution and whoring is used here. Uh, because they are literally prostituting themselves in worship of other gods. But are, are, although it might other be a, a general sense of other gods, the point is they were not worshiping God, and they were making God angry by doing what was evil in his sight. They were serving gods that were not the one 
true God. In verse 14, it says, the, the anger of the Lord was kindled against them. God becomes angry. He gave them over to plunderers who plundered them. He sold them into the hand of the surrounding enemies so that they could no longer withstand their enemies. And whenever they marched out, the hand of the Lord was against them for harm. And they were in terrible distress. In verse 16, we see this cycle arise. And the Lord raised up judges. Now, when we think about a judge, we might think of a guy in a robe with a gavel. We think about a courthouse. In the biblical sense, this word judge is, is, is more like a military leader, someone who would deliver people from oppressors and from slavery. He, he could be considered a deliverer or a type of savior. So God would raise up these, these judges, these deliverers, who would save them out of the hand of the oppressors. And yet, in verse 17, these people still don't get it. It says they don't listen to their judges. And in here we see that strong word, that strong imagery used. They hoard after other gods. They bowed down to them. They soon turned aside from the way in which their fathers had walked, who had obeyed the commandments of the Lord, and they didn't do so. Whenever the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with that judge. Notice that the Lord is doing this. The Lord is raising up the judge. The Lord is being with the judge. And he saved them from the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. For the Lord was moved to pity. Where there can be compassion because of their groaning, because of those who afflicted and oppressed them. And whenever the judge died, they turned back and were more corrupt than their fathers. Going after other gods, serving them, bowing down to them. They didn't drop any of their practices or their stubborn ways. So what happens again? Verse 20, the Lord gets angry. The anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And he says, because these people has transgressed my covenant that I commanded and have not obeyed my voice, I will no longer drive them out, any of the nations that Joshua left when he died, in order that my test them, whether they will take care to walk in the ways of the Lord as their fathers did or not. So the Lord left those nations, not driving them out quickly, and he did not give them into the hand of Joshua. So you see the cycle here? This, this foundational cycle that we'll, uh, we'll see throughout the book of Judges, the people sin and they're oppressed. They're afflicted. They get plundered. Then in their distress, they cry out. God raises up a judge and he saves them. And there's peace, good things. The judge dies and we're right back to the top. And that cycle will, will happen all the way through the book of Judges. And it doesn't just stay in one place. We'll see throughout the book of Judges that it actually is like a downward spiral. So all throughout the book of Judges, I don't know why I'm smiling at this. <laughs> the stories get worse. It is, it is irony. And um, if, you have a, if you're faint of heart, uh, you'll have a hard time reading the end of Judges. It's very disturbing. It, gets, it goes from like PG-13 to R to rated M for mature. There's some disturbing stories in the end of Judges. And it's showing how this cycle is continually getting worse and worse. So now that we've briefly worked through the story and we've looked at some brief uh, historical contextual information, what does this story show us about the relationship between God and his people? Let's answer that first question. What is this story teaching us? What is this story proclaiming? What is this story showing us? There's a lot of things I think you could say here, and there will be a lot of other ways that you might be able to answer this, especially as we go through the stories, but there's one thing I want to hone in on as we look at this story, and it's a tension that we see that God is both for and against his people. 
Does that make us a little uncomfortable? That God would be against his people? Did you notice that tension in the story? On the one hand, God says, I will never break my covenant with you. And yet he says, because you've not obeyed me, I'm going to punish you. Did you notice that? Did you notice uh, in verses 13 and 14 that when the people disobey God, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel? Did you notice in verse 15 that when they marched out, the Lord was against them and it says against them for harm? Yet at the same time in verse 18, the Lord is also moved by pity, by compassion and compassion to save his people, to raise up judges and deliver them. What do we do with this? Is God some sort of hot and cold, some sort of two-faced? I never really know what I'm going to get with God. Is he going to be angry? Is he going to be loving? What's, what's going to win out? His, his justice or his love? What's, what's going to win? Even across the Christian faith, there's many people who will highlight one over the other. Say, God is all loving and all caring. And don't talk about wrath and justice and judgment. That makes people uncomfortable. There's others who would say, it's all about justice and judgment I'm just looking forward to the day, right, when this judgment's coming. And there's, there's not a lot of talk about his love. But what do we do with this tension that we see in the story of Judges? This tension is because God is both just and loving. If he did not punish evil, he would not be just. He would not be good. And yet he saves and he has compassion on sinners, people who are evil and wicked, people who are rebellious. How does that work? Sometimes when we think about anger and love, we can think that anger is the opposite of love. And, and I would submit to you, I would argue that I don't think anger is the opposite of love. I think apathy is. So if we were to see in this story that anytime the Israelites disobey God, that they're rebelling against him, and God goes, whatever. If we were to see an apathetic God in the book of Judges, I would argue that that God would neither be just nor loving. Parents who do not discipline their children are neither loving nor just. Okay, God who, God is not, a God who is not just and loving, God who is apathetic in the face of evil is not a good God. And Judges kind of forces this tension in our face. And it leaves us to maybe think, okay, what's going to happen here? What's going to win out? Will God's faithfulness win out? Will he kind of give in to sin? But what about his holiness? Will he give up on his people who are wicked? But what about his faithfulness? And, and do you see how this goes back and forth? And, and we'll see throughout the book of Judges this tension. And it, it, it's a tension I see that we'll see throughout the whole Bible. And that kind of leads us into answering that second question. How does this story fit into the larger story of the Bible, the larger meta-narrative? And you won't find the answer to this question resolved anywhere in the Old Testament. It's until you flip the page into the New Testament, and a guy named Jesus steps into the story, steps onto the scene. It is only in Jesus where we'll see this answer, this tension resolved. How will God's goodness, his justice, his love be resolved? See, Jesus comes and he claims to be the son of God. He claims to be 
perfect and spotless. Jesus is from the lineage of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and later King David. He's the fulfillment of these promises, this this longing that the Old Testament is, is looking forward to someone who will save them from this condition. And Jesus lives a perfect life and he goes to the cross as he says, I've come to give my life as a ransom for sinners. Jesus comes to die in the place of sinners. And on the cross, there's this beautiful exchange. On the one hand, God's sin, not God's sin, God doesn't sin. Forget that I ever said that. God never sins. (laughs) Our sin, the anger that was kindled against sinners, you and me, me and you, is that should have been poured out on us. This anger that should have been directed at us, this punishment that we should have been born on us, that should have been poured out on us, Jesus takes our place. The wrath of God that, that we deserved is poured out on Jesus. Jesus stands in the place of our sin, He is the substitute for sinners. And yet at the same time, our sin is not only put on Jesus, but his righteousness, his perfection, his moral cleanliness is given to us. This exchange happens on the cross. So that now when God looks at us, he sees his son, Jesus. He sees righteousness. He sees moral purity and cleanliness. And he gives love and acceptance. Our sins are taken away and his righteousness is given to us and the wrath, the justice of God and the love of God are both simultaneously resolved in Jesus. How does a a just God deal with sinners? How does his wrath, his justice satisfied if he didn't punish sin, would he be good? But how can he love sinners like you and me? And the answer, my friends, is Jesus. How does this get resolved? In the shape of a cross. Amen? This is how the story is resolved. And on the cross, Jesus brings eternal salvation. Do you notice through the book, through Judges 2, that the Lord raises up a judge, brings deliverance, there's peace, but then something happens? The judge dies. People go right back to the sinful ways. Jesus is eternal. Jesus died once. He's never going to die again. Amen? Amen. Jesus is better than Othniel. He doesn't die. He's better than Samson. He's better than Ehud. He's better than Jephthah. He brings eternal deliverance. And he solves this problem in our heart in which we are prone to go back to our stubborn ways our wicked ways. He brings the promised Holy Spirit who gives us a new heart to follow God and to want to follow God and to long to be with him and to love him. This is the good news of the gospel that Jesus is the supreme judge. He is the the great high judge and he brings eternal salvation, eternal deliverance because he is eternal. Amen? Amen? So what does this story call us to do? In light of all this, What admonition or exhortation does this story offer? And I have two things that I hope are easy to to remember. Number one, this reality that Jesus is better. Always preach, show your heart, continually show your heart that Jesus is better. 
Why? This cycle that we see in the book of Judges is so often true in our own lives, isn't it? We are so prone, like these Israelites, to worship and bow down to other gods and, and idols. You remember that God continually called his people to drive out these idols, smash the altars, remove this idol practices, don't worship their gods. And it would be a mistake, I think, for us to say, well, never been in a temple and slept with a prostitute, never worshipped Baal, I don't even know what that God looks like or who he is, I've never worshipped Ashtaroth. This passage doesn't really apply to me. I don't have any small figurines on my mantle that I say prayers to. I don't have an altar in my backyard. Hey, well, those are true about idols. Idols are, are much more subtle, sneaky, pervasive than that. They're not just limited to material images. This is how I would define an idol, and I think it's helpful for us to think about idolatry in this way. An idol is anything any relationship, any person or cause that we make the center of our joy, our satisfaction, our hope, our security, our peace, and our affection. So in this case, an, an idol is not just something that we bow down and worship to in a, in a little figurine or a, an altar. An idol are the things that consume our thoughts. An idol are the things that we daydream about. An idol is the thing that we think we need to be happy. For a Christian, an idol is something that, that comes alongside as that co-savior with Jesus. And yeah, Jesus is good, but you need this to be really happy. You need this to be really secure. You need this to, be, to have peace and to find goodness. That's what I think it's helpful to think about idolatry in this way. But idols leave us unhappy. They leave us restless. They leave us joyless. They might satisfy for a while, but it's fleeting pleasure. They deceive us. Notice how uh, the author of Judges describes worship of idols, following other gods, bowing down to, to pagan gods. It says in Judges 2, verse 3, they shall become thorns in your sides, meaning they're not going to cause comfort. They're going to hurt you. Anyone like a thorn in their side? I tend to avoid thorns. What about snares? This is not the kind of snare that I'm playing in a couple minutes. It's not a drum snare. This is a trap. What does this teach us about idolatry? It shows us that idols enslave us. That we're then, we think they're satisfying some sort of desire or urge that we have, and yet they're controlling us. They're causing us to be addicted to it. We have to have our idols. And I think more vividly, more graphically, idols are also described when we engage in idol worship as prostitution. It's whoring after other gods. That, that language, I think, should cause some sort of repulsion, disgust in our hearts. And this imagery, I think, is profound when we think about idolatry. When you think about prostitutes, what, what are they doing? They are giving themselves up for, for something far less than what they're worth. And they're giving themselves to something with little or no hope of love and return. They're being used by their buyer. So when we engage and we worship idols, I think what this means is that 
we are giving ourselves to things which will never love us in return the way we are seeking them. When we are worshiping idols, we are, yes, committing spiritual adultery, but we are giving ourselves to things that don't care about us, that can't forgive us, that don't really love us, and aren't really committed to us. Idolatry is a huge problem. One, one pastor this week I was reading said that the entire Bible can be seen as a story between idolatry and true faith. Okay, a guy by the name of Martin Luther, you know, the guy who nailed those theses, thesi, to the door. I think I just made that word up. <laughs> Martin Luther said that the first commandment is first. You shall have no other gods before me because you never break any of the other following commandments without first breaking the first one. So every sin, the sin behind the sin is idolatry, is something has become more important. I've elevated something to be a, a, a God in my life. So I will, I will argue this, that the key to growth as a Christian. Here it is. Is identifying idols, smashing them, and showing your heart that Jesus is better. That is the key. That will lead to greater gratitude and humility. That will lead to greater freedom and joy and peace. That's the key, I think. Or one key. A big key. It's one of the big ones. It's up there. Showing our hearts that Jesus is better. Because what will happen if not, if we're not dealing with those sins behind the sin, we will be really frustrating ourselves, pounding our heads against a wall. We'll, we'll be thinking, okay, if I just whip up my emotions enough, then I'll follow God. Right? Do you have the, the Christian summer camp syndrome? Go to these camps, I get whipped up in emotions, I feel great, I'm gonna do great things for God, school year starts, right back in, in my sin. I, I had this great spiritual highs that happened on Sunday. Feel great, and then Monday happens. Or maybe we just try it really hard through bending our will, moral restraint. If I just try hard enough, if we don't get to the sin beneath the sin, this will lead, I think, to great pride because we think that we fix the problem on our own. Our will lead to great fear because we'll never be good enough. We'll never really solve that problem. We'll feel like we're never enough. We're condemned. Unless we change ourselves from the inside out, it'll only be a matter of time before our emotions fade, before we get tired of moral restraint and our system will collapse. We must seek to identify the root Get at that idol, smash it, drive it out, and say, heart, believe Jesus. Jesus is better. Does that make sense? Uh, let's, let's do a little case study or look at an example illustration. Let's look at a lack of generosity in your life. Not saying this is any one of you. Let's look at a lack of generosity. What does, we could call it greed or stinginess or being cheap, if you like to put a positive spin on it, you call it being prudent, right? What does a lack of generosity reflect in your life? I think it would be a disservice to say, well, I'm a sinner and I sin. That's true, right? But you're not going to resolve the problem if you just say, well, I'm a sinner. This is just how I've always been. Um, I, 
I didn't grow up with a lot of money, so I have a hard time letting it go. Whatever the case may be, we try to just excuse ourselves and justify ourselves or say, I'm just a sinner. I'll just, this is just what I have to, this is who I am. How do we change? How do we get deeper than that? We have to look at the specific, what's, what's going on here? A lack of generosity reveals, I think, something has become more important or you believe that you have to have this in order to be happy, in order to be secure, in order to be satisfied, and that thing might be money. So if you don't have money, you feel insignificant. You don't feel like you have security. You don't feel satisfied. So money becomes your functional God. Money becomes a thing. Alongside Jesus, or maybe Jesus now is under money, that you are worshiping and following. And this could be the case with anything. Okay, we know, friends, that our hearts are idol factories. That's what a guy named John Calvin said. We can make an idol just about of anything. So the key to growing as a Christian is identifying those, looking at the roots of them, and showing how Jesus is better. We know that Jesus is better than money because Jesus isn't going to rot. He's not going to be destroyed. Jesus doesn't depreciate. Jesus isn't going to get lost. He's not going to get mishandled. Jesus isn't tied to the stock market. He's infinitely valuable. He's infinitely secure. He's infinitely rich. We don't need money. We got Jesus. He's all that we need. Amen? Amen. Jesus forgives you. I haven't had money be very gracious to me when I fail it. It doesn't forgive very well. Jesus forgives. In my own life, my idol, my, one of my main idols is the approval of others. If you know me a little bit, you know, this is, I, I try to say this often. I want as many people to know this about me so that as many people can be speaking the truth of the gospel to me. I often think I, I need and long for, I just want others to accept me and approve me. I need to perform for them. Therefore, it's really important that I have the best sermons because others have to approve of me. It's really important that I was the best pitcher in high school because I, I had to perform and, and look good. I had my significance, my value, my identity all wrapped up in that. And you know what happens when I start doing that? Joy gets sapped. Happiness, peace, satisfaction is sapped because it rides on fickle people. I work too much, I struggle with resting because I feel like I need to perform, I need to show how worthy and valuable I am. And yet, nothing offers me the freedom, the joy, and the peace that Jesus does. Thank you for those who continually speak this truth into my life. Thank you for those who have identified this idol and continually calling me to follow Jesus. I'm considerably grateful to you. I love, I love you, I love this church, and I want you guys to experience the same joy and freedom that I've been experiencing as I'm journeying with Jesus with you all. Amen? Amen. So, number one, long first point, I know, but I got really excited about that one. Continually show Jesus is better to your heart. Another way of thinking about that is, is continually apply the gospel to your heart. Identify those idols and get the gospel deeper and deeper into your heart. Second point, show others how much better Jesus is. Show others that Jesus is better. Show others how Jesus is better. Look at me with Judges 2.10. 
and all that generation who were gathered to their fathers, and there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work he had done for Israel. Earlier in, in uh, the Bible, in the Torah, in the law, the Israelites were charged to pass the knowledge of God, teaching others about God to their children. In fact, in Deuteronomy 6, 5 through 7, it says this, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. Verse 6, these words that I've commanded you today shall be on your heart. Verse 7, you shall teach them diligently to your children. And you shall talk of them when you sit in the house, when you walk by the way, and when you lie down and when you rise. And I think what this means, this phrase means, is that you're teaching your kids about Jesus in the everyday stuff of life and the daily routines of living. So from Judges 2 and for Deuteronomy 6, we see how critical and important the role of discipleship in the home of mothers and fathers, parents are to their children, how important that is to pass the faith on to generation after generation. We know that the, we see this from the scriptures. Parents have an incredible, a high responsibility to disciple their children well to pass down their faith, to educate their children in all that Christ has done. And yet at the same time, I think, show your children what experiencing God looks like. Amen? Amen. I don't think we just want our kids to know about God or to know about Jesus. I hope that we, we show our kids what it, how sweet it is to follow Jesus. We want them to experience God as they're seeing us experience God. Amen? So we sing with our kids. We sing to God, hoping that our kids will overhear. We read our scriptures and we pray to God, hoping that our kids will, will see us and the joy that that gives us and brings to us. We gather with the church on Sunday as a continuation of what we've been doing all week. We've been singing and we've been studying and we've been praying and we've been teaching the children. Right? I hope that if I were to go upstairs right now and ask the, the children what is most important to your mom and dad? Who do they love the most? Can you tell me? I pray that that would be Jesus. I pray it would ring out Jesus. I pray if that's not the case, that we'll help them get there. Let's show them how sweet it is to follow Jesus. Maybe we have to do some own repenting in our own life because other gods or functional saviors have become more important than following Jesus. And our kids might say, well, this is more important than following Jesus. My, my dad's work, or my mom's social media, or whatever the case may be. Let's show them that Jesus is more better. <laughs> Jesus is better-er. <laughs> but while this is true of discipling our kids in the home, and as, as parents, we have this responsibility to be discipling our children Jesus takes this command and he goes through the house to the world. It doesn't just stop in the home. It, it goes outside of the home. It's important that the gospel passed down through families, through generations, but it's also just as important that it's passed out through those that we interact with. Jesus would say this in Matthew 28, go therefore and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. That's a responsibility that now every Christian has. So if, if you're not a parent in here, you say, sweet, 
I'm off with this one. Well, Jesus has a command for you, my friend. All nations. So every disciple is both a learner of Jesus and a teacher of Jesus. Do we think about ourselves in this way? I, I pray that we do. I pray that we, we take maybe what we learn on Sunday mornings. We, we take what we're learning about Jesus and we're learning about the gospel and we're, we're teaching others about what we're learning. Because all disciples, yes, have a responsibility to apply the gospel to themselves, to seek to identify those idols and root them out, but all disciples have a responsibility to make other disciples. They're being discipled themselves and they're discipling others. Pass it on and pass it down. So I pray that we will be a church that identifies idols, that helps each other identify idols, that we will be a church that's fluent in the gospel, that's growing in our ability to apply how Jesus is better to, to you and to you and, and to me and to us. And I pray that we would be a church that loves our children well as we disciple them together. But we love our city, we love our coworkers, we love those we're in contact with as we're seeking to make disciples of all nations. Amen? Let's show our hearts how Jesus is better. Let's show others how Jesus is better. And let's sing and that very truth that Jesus is better right now. Amen? Amen. Let's pray.